folks, welcome to Healthcare Unfiltered. I am your host, Shadi Nabhan, a hematologist and a medical oncologist with interest in all aspects of healthcare delivery, treatment, leadership, mentorship, and policy. Thank you for your support and for being loyal listeners to Healthcare Unfiltered. Over the past several weeks, I have aired several episodes on the American Board of Internal Medicine Maintenance of Certification Program, the ABIM MOC. Aaron Goodman, a physician from UCSD, started a petition that has gathered almost 20,000 signatures since it commenced on July 21st. Subsequently, I hosted a discussion and a debate between Rich Barron, the CEO and president of the ABIM, and Aaron Goodman himself. And that debate, let's say, did not uh, appear or looked favorable to the ABIM. The anger and the attention to the ABIM maintenance of certification program escalated, especially after I hosted an episode with Dr. Wes Fisher, an electrophysiologist at North Shore University Health System in the Chicago area. But what has happened over the past several weeks is we heard from a society, it's a cardiology society, about their opinion pertaining to the ABIM. The Society for Cardiovascular Angiography and Interventions, and they go by SCAI, S-C-A-I. It's kind of a cool name if you ask me. The Society of Cardiovascular Angiography and Interventions, SCAI, did issue a statement urging the American Board of Internal Medicine to rethink this MOC policies. And this society has almost 5,000 interventional cardiologists And they have actually issued a statement saying that some of their society members uh, had their privileges threatened and even revoked, despite the fact that they actually passed the necessary exams and they report the procedural volumes as required. This made no sense to the society leadership. It obviously affects patient care. And it, uh, it it really takes a lot of energy to try to explain the situation as it evolved. Subsequently, Sky or the Society of Cardiovascular and Geography and Interventions issued a statement. In that statement, they said, this situation unacceptably exacerbates the interventional cardiology workforce shortage and threatens to directly impact the care of patients suffering life-threatening cardiovascular emergencies. It is the position of Sky that the ABIM must immediately abandon its complex practice and stop mixing non-participation in MOC with not certified status. Sky concluded its statement by saying its members must be protected from ABIM's pattern of making changes to the certification status of interventional cardiologists based on MOC participation. The group actually said that simple and credible rules are advisable. The ABIM clearly was not too happy with this, and they fired back, and they stated, no physician loses certification without being notified several times about what requirements they need to fulfill in order to remain certified, an ABIM spokesperson said. So basically, they're saying, we are sending you a gazillion of emails what you need to do, so why don't you just leave the cath lab Stop doing these interventions and go back and do these questions because we've sent you a lot of emails. What the ABIM responded, they said physicians who have MOC points due by the end of the year 
receive several reminder emails. And this information is also available on the dashboard of their physician portal. So the response obviously was not favorable, but it says that we are keep notifying you. So if you're really losing your status, it's because you're not reading your emails and you're not responsive to what we are asking you to do, which is do as we say. So what did I do? I've reached out to SKY, the Society of uh, Cardiovascular and Geography and Intervention, and I've asked them to come on Healthcare Unfiltered. I am lucky to host Dr. Alison DuPont, uh, who is a cardiologist, of course, interventional cardiologist, and she's a member of the on the communication committee. And the incoming president in 2025, Dr. Uh, Sri Hari Naidu, also interventional cardiologist, he sits on the executive committee that issued that statement, and he will become president of the society in 2025. I've asked them to come on the show to share with us their career journey and what they do day in and day out. But more importantly, how did they come up to the conclusion that led them to issue this statement that I just shared with you? I shared a little bit of that statement with you. You can, of course, watch all of this. You can uh, read the statement online. I appreciate your support. Please let me know what you think and keep in mind that I will respond to all of your emails and questions. You can follow me and direct message me on Twitter at Shadi Nabhan or reach me via email. And of course, check out the website. And if you're in the mood for a book, by the way, of course, you knew it was coming. You got to read Toxic Exposure. Toxic Exposure, the true story behind the Monsanto trials and the search for justice. I would appreciate if you pick up a copy and let me know what you think. Without further ado, Sky members, Drs. Alison DuPont and Srihari Naidu on Healthcare Unfiltered. We'll start with Dr. Alison DuPont. Welcome to Healthcare Unfiltered. And um, maybe a little bit about you. What you do, what's your day job and then what do you do for Sky? Thank, thank you, Shadi. I appreciate you having me on. Um, my name is Allison Dupont. I'm an interventional cardiologist at a very, very busy community practice in the Atlanta area. Um, I do everything from structural heart to coronary to uh, leading our ECMO program at the Northside Hospital System. Um, and I will preface this by saying that anything that I say is not does not represent anything coming from Northside. Okay, just in case I forget to say that. It's gonna held, be held against you in court. Yeah, I'm just kidding. yeah. Northside is a big hospital system. It's a five hospital system, and I'm primarily based at our tertiary care facility, which is located in Lawrenceville, um, just outside of Atlanta. Extremely busy practice. I probably work on average, I would say, between sixty and sixty-five hours a week. Um, that does not include my call duties. Um, I have, I do take STEMI and oftentimes even general cardiology call. I'm on call on average about every fourth night currently. Um, I do cover STEMI call at some of our other hospitals as well um, because we don't have enough physicians to cover those hospitals. So um, I am stretched very thin. I do a lot of driving between these hospitals. Um, that's when I listen to podcasts and CME and things like that. But I enjoy, 99% of what I do is taking care of patients. So 99% of the time I am in front of a patient, I am pursuing a procedure on a patient, I am in clinic with patients. 
and only you know a small percentage of the time do I spend doing any kind of administrative duties. Although I am the director of the, the CCU and the ECMO program at Northside, the majority of the time I spend taking care of patients and making sure they're getting quality cardiology care. I joined Sky um, as soon as I finished my training, which is about 12 years ago, um, I finished my interventional cardiology fellowship. I went to UNC in Chapel Hill um, and joined the practice that I'm with now, although I'm now at a different hospital system with that practice. Um, so I've been with the same great group of people for that entire period of time. Um, and all of us are very like-minded in the quality of care that we give patients. Um, but, but over the last few years, I've gotten more involved with Sky as my kids have grown. Um, I have two teenagers. Uh, leading up to that, I had a lot of, you know, it was difficult to balance work and doing things outside of work. Um, the, the, the little bit of free time that I had as an interventional cardiologist, I spent with my kids. Um, they were small, they wanted their mom, um, and uh, I didn't have time for anything outside of work and my kids, pretty much. That was my life. And as my kids got a little bit older, I became more involved with Sky. Um, I have become part of multiple committees on Sky. Uh, the first one that I joined was the Women in Innovations Committee. So Sky um, has a lot of opportunities for uh, getting involved with all these various committees. And um, Harry can explain probably more about it. But the Women in Innovations Committee within Sky um, has many roles, um, one of which is to try to attract more women into the field of interventional cardiology. Um, and uh, we formed a mentorship committee while I was on there, which has grown into a larger mentorship program. I'm also on the communications committee. So the, the communications committee is responsible for communicating to all the members and also communicating outside of Sky. And then the last thing that, that I'm currently involved with with Sky is the Wellbeing Task Force. The Wellbeing Task Force is a new task force that was created this year with the intention of improving physician well-being. So we all know that physician uh, suicide rates have been on the rise. Um, stressors are, um, have not decreased. Stressors continue to increase. People are, are very um, uh, stretched for time. And uh, it's, it's hard to make time for yourself and to feel valued, really. And this, this task force is the whole purpose of it is to um, help physicians within Sky to, to develop a sense of well-being. Um, and so that just started, and I am one of the co-chairs of that committee. So that's kind of my involvement with Sky in a nutshell. Suri, uh, do I call you Suri or do I call you Hari? Hari, Hari's fine. Okay, Dr. Hari Naidu with us as well from Sky. So tell us a little bit about you and um, what's your day job looks like and um, uh, what do you do for Sky? You know, my name is Hari Naidu. I'm an interventional cardiologist, but I also spend a lot of my time taking care of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, which you might recall is a heart muscle disease that causes sudden cardiac arrest uh, in youth, athletics, and may cause heart failure later in life. Um, I've worked at three hospitals. I was at Cornell first and NYU Long Island, and then now currently at Westchester Medical Center, which is a little bit north of the city. There over the years now, I've been the director of the cath lab. So I've been a director of the cath lab for about 17 years now at the different hospitals. Um, and at Westchester Medical Center, which includes three different hospitals, I've run the cath labs for all three hospitals. Uh, so there's a lot of administration in my role. So probably I'd say at least one to one and a half days, I'm doing administration for the 
hypertrophic cardiomyopathy program or the cath labs as a whole, including all the quality aspects of processes, and also um, taking care of all the different services that rotate through the cath lab, which in our lab includes uh, pediatric interventional cardiology, all the types of cardiology, including TEE, uh, electrophysiology, heart failure transplant biopsies, and we also have vascular doing all their procedures in our lab, uh, as well as the structural program. Uh, and because it's a it's nine labs, uh, we have other services that use it as well, including the pain service, uh, vein service, and sometimes we offload VIR. So it's a lot of different stakeholders. So of course, it's a lot of administration to make sure that everybody's happy and playing well in the sandbox, which we do. I'm very proud of. Um, personally, I do. Uh, I was very busy for coronary and structural. Now I've toned some of that down. I do more uh, alcohol ablation and watchmen um, and uh, coronary and, and uh, STEMI columns, also STEMI call every fourth night. So Allison and I share that. I like to think that I'm a busy academic practice. I, I publish quite a bit every year um, and I'm on guidelines and whatnot, um, publish textbooks. But at the same time, I have a very, very busy clinical practice because of the uh, the need in hypertrophic cardiomyopathy for these patients uh, and the fact that we do a lot of alcohol ablations here. Um, which uh, you may or may not know is not something that's done routinely in a lot of different places. So that's my that's my job. I love it. Um, work with some amazing people. I love having my uh, hands in different things from academics to teaching to national society involvement and to the clinical aspects of seeing patients day in and day out, uh, which I love. Actually, when I moved from hospital to hospital, I kept my patients, which is a whole different other topic on how you're able to uh, keep your patients just by moving through systems, which is quite tough these days. Um, so that's my day job. Uh, in terms of Sky, you know, I, I've been really, uh, you know, involved in Sky almost since the get-go. I've been out about 20 years now, and within about two or three years, I've been involved in Sky. We had noted as, a, as, as an organization that uh, is really about the person on the street. It's really the people who are the bread and butter doers in the cath lab, uh, taking care of patients, uh, being on call at night, and really at the ground level. And so. I always enjoyed the fact that the people in Sky really cared about patients and patient care was always front of center. In fact, the society started as a quality program, meaning about 30, 40 years ago, about how do we maintain quality in the cath lab? When everybody's doing these procedures, how do we make sure that they're being done well uh, with high volume, with good outcomes? And so initially we started as a program to educate and create, uh, create ways to um, maintain the same types of standards, including registries. You mentioned the name, it used to be the Society of Coronary Angiography, and then when intervention came in, they added on the I, and it became Cardiovascular Angiography and Intervention, Which, but I love the fact that it's SKY, because people think it's SKY, but it certainly sounds cool. I did, I can tell you, I thought it was SKY. I know, well, we'll go with that. <laughs> so it's SCAI, uh, and then over the years, it's expanded to include structural and peripherals, and really under the House of Interventional Cardiology, it's not just cardiologists, but also vascular. We now include surgeons in the cardiovascular space as well as imagers in the cardiovascular structural space. So it's really more about the patients we take care of and what we do. I got involved initially because it was really an engaging society that allowed people to come in with ideas and see those ideas to fruition. So I had an idea long ago about a uh, leadership program and uh, it gathers steam and has become uh, one of the best leadership programs, I think, around in cardiology uh, called the ELM program. It's now in its sixth cycle. Um, and then I was involved in the heart failure initiatives, starting as an initial heart failure task force within Sky that grew into a whole shock program and then a, a shock definition. And uh, now we have a symposium every year on cardiogenic shock, which is quite large, uh, all of which I've handed over. And then as I've moved on within Sky, 
I'd moved into a leadership position. For about 10 years, I worked in development and industry relations, um, which is basically how to get money into the society, do all the things we want to do uh, for our members and our patients. And then more recently, I moved into the executive line uh, to be president in 2025. So that's uh, that's my story. So you're, you're incoming president. You'll assume presidency in 2025? Yeah, so two years from now. And what's your term would be two years or? Uh, each term is just one year, but the way it works is you lead up. So you move from uh, secretary to VP to president-elect to president, then immediate past president. So you're on this rotating five-person uh, steering committee, which we call the executive committee. And we're going to get into that because that's how a lot of these decisions right. are made. And then you, it's an elected position or you just nominate yourself? Like, is it an elected or selected? So uh, as with all societies right now, uh, the way it works is you can either self-nominate or somebody can nominate you. It goes to a nominating committee that then uh, looks at all the people who are nominated for all of them, including the board of trustees and also major chairs uh, within the society, such as the annual program. And then they vet all those people and it goes through uh, several rounds to figure out with internally with a nominating committee that includes uh, at-large members as well as people in the executive committee. So there's uh, input from um, uh, the membership in that way. And then that goes to the board of trustees that then uh, approves that. And then it does go out to all the members as a uh, as a slate of candidates uh, every year for their uh, for their approval. Okay. It's a little so, different from the way that IBM, I, ABIM operates. Yeah, for sure. I mean, um, so Allison, um, did you always want to be a cardiologist? You know, I I didn't. Um, I actually thought I wanted to do primary care until I started my residency program. Um, and I just absolutely fell in love with cardiology. And then I, I told my husband, you know, I'm just, I'm going to add these three years on, but I'll be done after that. And then, you know, it came time to make a decision regarding subspecialty. And I was like, I'm, I'm sorry, I need to do this last year um, because I fell in love with the cath lab. Uh, it, the cath lab is where all of us as interventional cardiologists are really the happiest. You know, it's um, it's fun. It's You never know what you're walking into when you go in there. You can plan and plan, but um, each day is different. You know, there's so much to learn. There's so much changing constantly from from year to year, and it's it's very gratifying. It's a, extremely gratifying. Because you did mention how busy things are, and at least when your kids were younger, you really had no time to do anything else. And you know the, the 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 balance between family and work becomes obviously challenging. And what's intriguing is you sit on the well-being committee with this. So I'm pretty sure, like you, you're like a case study into trying to figure this out. So you can probably bring it home in terms of using yourself as an example to help in that well-being committee. Uh, for me, as a non-cardiologist. I think cardiology, interventional cardiology is a super busy specialty no matter what, unless you really have so many people to cover, right? Because I mean, it's an emergency, like you can't, this is not something I'll see them next morning. How how do you balance that? Like, I mean, you, I mean, unless you hire more people, more cardiologists, it's, how, how do you do it? I, I um, you know, I, I'm a mentor to a lot of younger people individuals looking at this as a possible career path. Um, and I don't really like the term balance myself. I think it it's a misnomer. I, I don't think you can really balance. I, I think there's times where the work is going to take the, 
the biggest priority. And then there are times that I have a little bit more time to spend with my kids. You know, I love that, actually. I love that distinction. Yeah. Yeah. For, for example, you know, the summertime, we all know summertime is going to be really difficult because just like every other specialty, people are gone. You're taking call every third night or even more than that sometimes. Um, but there, but there are plenty of times where I've had time for my family, but I, I, I won't say either. It's always been very stressful um, and having on in the back of my mind, um, the, the recertification process, um, not necessarily MOC in particular, but, you know, when I recertified, for example, um, in 2019 and 2020, um, I, I, my kids were still, you know, middle school age. Um, they still wanted me around, you know, now they're teenagers, so they don't really care so much, but that was, it was very stressful because trying to find time, enough time to spend with them and yet also prepare for this exam um it it's it takes a toll on you it really does even if it's even if it's in the short term so you know i think that the first time i did it fine I, you know I, I think that everybody needs to take a board exam when they're first coming out of training but um in follow-up i just think that it does nothing but but lead to stress. And I know we're going to get more touch. Oh, more yeah. We're going to get into it. I just want to make sure at least listeners know who you yeah. are as the cardiologist before we delve into the, the meat. Uh, how are you? Did you always want to be a cardiologist? Um, you know, I dabbled in different things, but you know, at the end of the day, my, my dad was also a cardiologist and he was an invasive cardiologist. And I think I definitely gravitated to how he was with his patients. He was a very, very busy clinician. And I just loved uh, how he was with his patients and how it built very strong relationships dealing with the, the organ that the people uh, always stay with their cardiologists, generally speaking. Uh, and I really loved that. And even now, 20 years, I have patients that have stayed with me that long. So I really didn't gravitate too much away from cardiology. Um, interventional, I wasn't sure I wanted to do. I think uh, you don't, I didn't certainly didn't figure that out until I did fellowship. I initially wanted to do heart failure, um, and I went to uh, University of Pennsylvania for heart failure. Uh, and then during my fellowship, I fell in love with the cath lab because I guess, you know, you don't really know if you're going to be good with your hands until you're, you know, doing things. You also don't know if you're going to be good under stress until you're doing things. And I think interventional cardiology can be a very intimidating field if you're not sure you can handle that. And so when I was there, I think I found it to be the natural fit between what I really loved about heart failure, which was the hemodynamics, the assessing patients to understand why they're sick. I love that part of it. And uh, and so the cath lab was where I got that. And then I could take that information and make my patients better. So I loved that science of it. And I use that to this day. And so that's my main fascination with the cath lab. Um, um, the, the, the idea that I can really figure out what's going on with the patient physiologically and then use that to, uh, you know, to make us all look more brilliant. So I, I want to start, Allison, by just uh, talking to you about uh, intriguing thing. I mean, you're on the communication committee, right? So there's yeah. a lot of things that happen every day. I presume there are certain things that occur that you don't need to comment on, right? I mean, you're not going to comment on every single thing that happens. You just won't have time. Right. I guess in the communication committee for Sky, how do you choose topics that you feel the society must opine or offer an opinion versus things, you know what, we can probably sit this one out. Right. Well, I will preface this by saying that the communications committee did not come out with a statement um, that was made by the executive committee. So Hari will talk about that. 
Um, but as part of the communications committee, the majority of the time, we're not discussing things that are controversial at all. Um, we are um, uh, publishing summaries of studies that have come out. So some of us will go to each major conference, CRT, TCT, SKY, ACC, and then we publish snippets of the important studies that have come out and we communicate those with all of the members. Um, we will send out um, information on um, meetings that are coming up and, and try to promote them. Um, so so we're not more scientific communication. It's more, it's usually more scientific communication. Yes, right. yes. Um, there are times where we will be asked to comment, you know, for example, if there's a study that comes out that's a little controversial in the, in the media, some of us will speak with the media about what, how that affects patient care. How does that study affect what we are doing as cardiologists? But, but this particular topic was 100% from the executive committee. So, Hari, this takes me to you. I mean, same yeah. question. It's kind of like, you know, there are lots of things happen. So sure. something made the executive committee say, let's just tackle this on. Take right. me through the room where you guys were meeting and thinking, should we say something? Should we not? Right. So to, to Allison's point, there's multiple committees. And so some of the things that we handle through advocacy committee or government relations committee. And so some of the things percolate that way. But for some of these bigger topics, you know, it's more about the direction of sky. And so the executive committee does have to opine on it. And then secondarily, yeah. we'll bring in the communications committee or the board of, and the board of trustees. So that's how it happened in this one. So we're always, you know, priding ourselves on the fact that Sky has always been a member organization. Uh, I think that's foremost, uh, you know, the torch that we carry. We're a member organization that really wants to feel that we know what's going on in the street um, and supporting our members. And so we're constantly watching. And I think this topic of ABIM, obviously, as you know, has been going on for 10 years. Uh, I was around at that time, too. When there was an initial uh, letter to, to ABIM from SCAI and from other societies that the process was confusing. This is when they had initially changed and initiated the MOC discussion. And so there was a there was a backlash at that time, as you may recall, and the society did put forth a formal statement at that time. Uh, ABIM did also then come out with some recommendations or, or, or ways they were going to change uh, to make it more uh, user friendly and fair. Um, and since that point, I think we've been watching it too, but with this recent uh, uh, episode by Aaron and others, I think it brought to light that at this point it's become very confusing uh, and for our members has been a, a major uh, you know, thorn in their side, so to speak. And the question becomes, how do you balance an appropriate maintenance of certification or competency uh, that's, con that's not confusing and not unduly uh, difficult for our members? The reason why it became to a head this time is because there became confusion about certification status that seemed to be fairly uh, whimsical, at least to our members, and also seemed to be tied to fees, uh, but also was very confusing. And so it did not seem fair to have a confusing system that all of a sudden people would become uncertified. And the problem we saw was that this is a direct patient care problem in that if, if one day you're certified and the next day you're not, it's not clear exactly what that what happened, even though you're within the, the time frame of the 10 years of your examination, then that puts in jeopardy a bunch of things, including your patients, including your hospital privileges, including potentially your insurance uh, reimbursement, and also whether you can teach at a hospital because it's associated with the ACGME. So that was sort of a lie in the sand that I think them tying 
uh, MOC to the certification status within the 10-year time frame uh, was problematic in a number of ways that, that really became real. And because of that, we want to do three things with the statement. One is to address our members that we do hear, we do listen, and we believe that it's an important problem that has come to a head. Number two, that it's important for ABIM to see that we uh, that we have listened to our members and feel that this is a, a time point for a statement for them to address. And number three, I think for the first time, uh, because nobody had been talking about it, this whole idea that hospitals and insurance companies are watching um, an ACGME and they need to know that there is confusion here. And so it is not fair to penalize physicians and patients that they see because of uh, something that's very confusing to people. Um, and so that part of it made us put together a statement. And the way it worked behind the scenes is there's five or six, six people on the executive committee. We do need a consensus, but we, we hash out things behind the scenes there and we discuss it until there's a consensus and people can bring up different topics. And obviously this is brought up by a, a few of us. And ultimately we decided that despite the fact that other societies had not said anything at the time, we felt it was important to say something for our members. So that's how that happened. We, we then drafted a, uh, a statement um, together with staff. We have wonderful staff at Sky, um, really, really top line people who are really great at what they do, very efficient um, and high quality. Uh, and they, they helped put together a statement that we then edited ourselves. And then we pushed it out to the board of trustees as well as the communications committee. And that's because there has to be checks and balances in the system. It's important for the board to see what's going on because they are directly responsive to the members. And they are also well um, diversified. They're, uh, you know, Sky has almost 5,000 members in 70 different countries. It's not an American society. It's an interventional and angiography society, so it's global. So it's important that there's buy-in from the broad board of trustees and the members that they represent, as well as from the communications committee, because they are good at communicating, presumably, and we picked them for that purpose. So we don't want people out of the loop, and there should be an ability to make any comments to that. Ultimately, we went through a couple iterations. And as you uh, may know, we don't rush on these things. It's important for a society, if we're going to make a statement, that we're going to be able to follow it up and not just make a statement and, and move on to the next, next thing, which is what happens on social media oftentimes. That can't happen in a society. If a society says something, they have to follow through. And so it was important to get all that buy-in so that this is something that we will be tracking and hopefully uh, improving upon. But, but your goal was your goal was to clarify what happens during the ten year period when you're certified, or your goal was to say this is nonsense. Our goal was to say that the way that they're doing this is uh, I don't know about nonsense, but the way they're doing it is confusing, and as a result, it becomes uh, no longer uh, really applicable or, or obvious to anybody. If your question is whether there should be maintenance to main, maintain proficiency, I think most people agree in various forms there, there needs to be something, be it CME, be it MOC, be it whatever the next iteration is. And I think that's something that we're going to have to take back and discuss within Sky, um, either with ABIM or whichever direction we may want to go. Um, but I think most people believe that you do need to have some maintenance of proficiency. But the question is, who does that? How do they do that? How is it easier for people? How is it not a weed out, but rather a weed in and make sure that people who are who are initially certified can maintain their certification? The goal should be to maintain everybody who was able to pass the boards the first time, because these are these are not people who 
typically get worse over time. These are people who are trying to maintain and balance their experience and their knowledge. Yeah. And, and Allison, I mean, we're not saying that people should not be proficient. All what we're saying is that we can be proficient without the MOC. You're doing your CME. But in essence, it's hard for me to believe. And I, I just went through your background, both of you, and what you do, right? It is hard for anyone to believe that your proficiency, your capabilities, and really your ability to take care of patients is contingent on few questions every quarter. I mean, I hate to believe that. It's not, it doesn't make any logical sense, right? If you're listening to this, we just went through all what you do every day. Yeah. And obviously, you know, uh, it's not really representative through these questions. So, so yeah, we didn't we didn't make a statement on their process. We didn't make a statement on their process. We've already done that uh, ten years ago, and I think it was very clear that the things that they were trying to change, they really didn't come through on. If we go through that, yeah. And so I think our statement was more to put a stake in the sand, that uh, stake in the ground, that we don't think that how it's transpiring right now is is appropriate. Allison, is it, when you communicate something like this, so the executive committee comes up with the statement, I want to go through the statement in a little bit, and then the communication committee probably disseminates that, I presume, out there. Do you prepare for, I mean, are you thinking what I'm going to, you know, is there backlash? Uh, maybe we should, you know, I mean, how do you prepare for the possibilities? I kind of feel like you have to be ready to whatever is going to happen afterwards. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I'm sure that the executive committee um, talked about that a lot during the development of the statement. Um, we did. We discussed that at the communications committee as well. But this topic has come up amongst us at the communications committee many times at the meetings. Um, and we were not surprised that Sky was that, they, that Sky came out with this statement. So our job was basically to um, sign off on the statement for lack of a better term um, that, that was handed to us from the executive committee. And it, essentially it stayed the same statement, but became a little briefer um, and, and then went back to the exec committee, I think for the final iteration. But I think everybody on that committee was, was not surprised and was elated that Sky was going to do this. It was a sign that that the, the membership um, was being listened to, um, that the, the organization was listening and processing the feedback, and that they were standing behind what the members felt. And um, we were, you know, as a, as a membership, as someone who's a member of Sky and not on the executive committee, um, I felt very proud that, that Sky stood up and, and made this statement. Yeah, and Suri, I mean, basically, one of the couple of things you've said in the statement, this situation unacceptably exacerbates the interventional cardiology workforce shortage and threatens to directly impact the care of patients suffering life-threatening cardiovascular emergencies. One of the things that, I mean, very strong and very powerful, and I wholeheartedly agree, uh, we did spaces, Twitter spaces, live um, a couple of days ago. And one of the things that I've started with is, why should the public care? Because it's like, if you're not a doctor and you're just, and the ABIM tells you, well, you know, we need your doctor to be a good doctor. This is a way to tell you it's a good doctor. What's a few hundred dollars a year? And we, what's a few questions here and there? You can understand that the public might have little sympathy for us, right? I mean, like, you know, these are a bunch of whiners. 
like you said, they may uh, believe that the certification and recertification process is, is so robust and proven. Um, I think that's where it becomes challenging. And so when it becomes all of a sudden people are uncertified, um, then it, it, it gives a false impression that the standard is much lower than uh, what just happened. And I think that's why it was very important to make a statement now, because we don't want that uh, what's happening with ABIM to to give that impression to patients. And we do think that, as you just heard, we're, we're every fourth night. If we lose people because they even temporarily because this is being hashed out, that is a problem for uh, how we can take care of all the heart attacks in the country and the structural heart disease, the valves and everything that we're doing. In, unless the system understands that it's 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 a, a fairly whimsical problem right now. Alison, do you think the public, let me, I'm going to give you like a thought experiment. Um, like there's one way to try to talk to a public person, a patient or a family member about the burnout and shortage and everything. And I still think it's a little bit difficult to communicate that because in their mind, what they are thinking is like, you know, 30 questions every quarter, like every three months, 30 questions every quarter that's how they're thinking right i mean again they're they're not living your lifestyle and they're paying 200 400 a year whatever it is that's one element of this versus what we hear sometimes from dr west fisher and others which is in addition to that there are certain financial practices going on that may not be as i guess kosher as we think they should be so which part resonates with the public more if you need to communicate and appeal to the public? I think that it's it's absolutely the fact that there will be a physician shortage if we continue to let physicians get burned out. And this is just adding to everything that's already on the plate of physicians. We've got to we've got to figure out a way to keep the quality of life good. You know, we are human beings um, and we have families and we have spouses and we have a life, you know, and anything that's added to our plate detracts from that. And there are so many other things besides MOC, right? We, we have to keep our state licensure. Um, we have to do CME. We have to do DEA. We now have to do, um, there's additional requirements now, at least in the state of Georgia for sexual harassment. Um, we have to do several hours of that. I don't know if that's a, a, a nationwide thing or not. Um, it's, it's one burden after another, after another, after another. And it, the, what, a multiple what a multiple choice test adds to determining the knowledge of an interventional cardiologist or any practicing physician for that matter, is nothing, you know, it, it just is not, it's not relevant. Um, and so that's, that I think is where that, where we have to go if, if we want to educate the public. I don't know that educating the public necessarily is the way to go though. I, I feel like we need to try as much as possible. And I think it's difficult because it's all over social media. Um, but I think we need to try as much as possible to keep this amongst the medical community, you know, um, and not make it a public issue. Yeah. Suri, um, I'd like you to reflect on that, whether you think blowing this up as a more of a public issue will help or not. And I think I'm going to read the next part of the statement, which is really very powerful, I thought. It is the position of Sky that the ABIM must 
immediately abandon its complex practice and stop mixing non-participation in MOC with not certified status. I think this was very powerful, very strong, very clear. Tell me the reaction. In a, um, did you when did you expect to hear back from the ABIM, or did you expect to hear from the ABIM whatsoever? And then reflect on what uh, what Allison said, because I hear two different thoughts. To be honest, I hear one thought is if you don't really grow it up to become this almost like a health public health issue, you know, patients are affected, families are affected, it's not going to improve. Um, and the other school of thought is this is a doctor's issue needs to stay as such and let's try to resolve it. Yeah, let me tackle the first one first, which is that uh, we knew what ABM's response would be because as a society, I will tell you, we ran it by ABIM. We had to make sure that from a legal standpoint, we did not say anything contrary to what their policies are. So we had transparency in that. We ran it by them. They sent a response back and then we gave them deadlines within a day to get response back and we re-edited it. Uh, so it was consistent. And uh, obviously they wouldn't be happy. So when they went out, we knew what their response would be. Uh, but their response to me was still that for them, it seems not confusing, but obviously it is a confusing process. And I think there is just uh, a disagreement on that end between uh, the constituents and uh, and those and the ABIM itself. You know, I hear what Allison's saying and I hear what you're saying, Shadi. Um, I think that, you know, the, the patients just want to make sure they're being taken care of, right? And they they hear the doctor shortage, but they don't really see the doctor shortage. They do see they take them a long time to get a doctor, a good doctor. Do they see the burnout? Uh, I don't know if they see the burnout. Maybe they felt it during COVID. I'm not sure they feel it now because it's a very personal thing for us. What resonates with patients may not resonate, uh, may not be the same same thing that resonates with us because they're not living in our shoes and we're not living in their shoes. So we don't really, you know, we live in theirs a little bit more, but in general, it's hard for people to relate. They will see doctors in general as making good money. Um, and the times they see doctors are probably out and doing things. And so we'll see that doctors maybe aren't as burned out. I, I don't know what they see, but I think the truth is this is a physician issue, right? This is how we're regulated, how we maintain proficiency and competency. We're committed to this as, as, as individuals. We're constantly reading, going to conferences, and as you know, and whatnot. And so this is how do we balance making sure that we're at the top of our game while still being in the game? And I think uh, that's something that physicians have to grapple with. And I think we just haven't, most physicians, and speaking as a member, have not felt uh, as adequately empowered for that. So I would say that it's important to, for patients to know that this is brewing, that there may be arbitrary decision-making that takes their physician out of the running for no apparent reason. Um, and that's important for them to know that and not to overblow that as anything real or substantial other than uh, a couple questions that maybe the, they didn't get around to doing because they didn't see the value in them. Um, and I think it, it's up to the ABIM to make sure that there's value in that. And I think the reason why this is blown up is because people feel, yes, there's it's only a few questions every quarter, but people are not finding the value in it. Um, and so it just feels like they're asked to do something that is rote that you can just look up and then move on. And I listened to your podcast with Aaron. I think all of those very much resonate with me personally, as well as with Allison. I think that's where the burnout contributes. We're, everything else we're doing in our life seems to be fairly meaningful. And we want this to be meaningful. And so the, the reaction was to make sure that this process, whatever it ends up being, is more meaningful. It's, it's like, you know, asking to do one more thing. I actually, in the podcast I did with Rich Barron and Aaron Goodman, I did tell Rich, I said, imagine somebody tells you you do only 
six pre-authorizations a year. That's really all you have to do. Well, six is very, you know, not a lot, right? But it is still a burden for you because, you know, you know what it entails and, and what it is. Um, Allison, what the ABIM said, um, no physician loses certification without being notified several times about what requirements they need to fulfill in order to remain certified. I found that response like, you know, pretty strange because it's like we're notifying, we're emailing you every week to remind you. What did yeah. you think of that response? Yeah, I mean, it's true. They are they are emailing me on a regular basis asking me to pay them. Um, but what I found interesting was that they said that they would not take away your certification, that it was not linked to MOC. And that's not true. I mean, I, I, I posted something on social media, I think it was last week, of all the screenshots of the emails that I've gotten. And it's, you know, it explicitly says, if you don't pay this MOC fee, then you risk being um, listed as not certified. That's what it says on the email. Um, and I had already actually reached, all, I had gotten all my MOC through some CME that actually happened to be MOC also, uh, which I didn't do on purpose, but it actually, I had, meet, I had met the MOC requirement um, and I just hadn't paid it. So I keep getting emails saying that I'm not going to be certified. So uh, that's, it's just, it's just not true. I mean, they're, they're talking, they're kind of talking out both sides of their mouths is how I think most people feel about this. You know, I'm trying just to think um, whether these statements, uh, two things, these statements are going to make a difference. But before we get there, I have not seen the American College of Cardiology, for example, the ACC, uh, issuing anything. <clears throat> Obviously, don't speak on their behalf, but you're a cardiologist. You probably have membership. I don't know if you do or not. But, you know, are you surprised by the paucity of medical organizations that have not opined on this topic? My own, American Society of Clinical Oncology and American Society of Hematology have not really said anything as well. So... Uh, I mean, I would have expected that, you know, we get an outpouring support from our societies that we have paid hundreds and hundreds of dollars over the past, over many years for membership. Uh, what's your reaction to that? Well, I, I can start. I, I, I'm surprised about the uh, non-cardiovascular societies because internal medicine has a lot of different societies. So I am surprised that, uh, especially after our statement, that others haven't really uh, followed suit, at least in the statement of what they felt was going on now. I am pleased that HRS did. Uh, I think this week or last week they came out with this. Maybe it was this uh, end of last week they came out with a statement. These are the electrophysiologists, similar to our statement um, about MOC. Um, you know, I can't speak for ACC, but all I can tell you is that cardiology, I think, you know, does think very similarly. And, I, and sometimes when people are quiet, it could be that things are happening and it just can't speak as much or as fast. Even in our own uh, SCAI, this went on for about a, a month. You guys were talking about this stuff online for a while. Uh, and we were reticent because as we're discussing and deliberating, that's the time where we really can't say anything. There's a quiet period where we're doing our due diligence on A, do we want to say something here? B, what, are, what is our goals? C, how will we affect change in this space? Um, and uh, those things are very important. And I, I don't know what the other organizations are doing. But I think uh, it's possible they could be in different um, aspects of that trajectory. You know, that, that's a good point. I mean, it's possible they're all just contemplating the statements and legal review and things like that. Allison, what are these statements going to make a difference? We talked about that yesterday on the podcast. I, I, 
I don't know. I, I hope that they do. Um, it does give me a little glimmer of hope that we could see some change. I would love to see more organizations coming out and, and speaking their minds as well. Um, I think the more organizations that do that, the better. Um, but ABIM is a big enterprise and they've got their hands in a lot of things. Um, and it's a very complicated web. And um, I'm not sure that just having the organizations come out and make statements like that is gonna make all the difference in the world. I, I'd, be, I'd be kidding myself if I said that was gonna be the, the difference, but um, it does not hurt. And it definitely helps the members feel heard. You know, and I think that was a big step in the right direction. Ari, what do you think? Do you think these statements, I mean, they're obviously commendable. I think there are many people on Met Twitter who are just seeing your praises and including myself. I was very happy to see this. Is this going to help? I, I believe so. Um, and obviously, you know, I know that there's stuff that we're working on within Sky Leadership to uh, to move the needle. So I think that's all I can say right now. But uh, but I would say yes. Anything else? I mean, I mean, with the ABI, I mean, what's going to happen, I think that there will be more information over the next couple of months. Maybe there are some new um, societies. I mean, the HRS you mentioned, I did actually was very happy to see the HRS statement. But then the more I read it, it was it was a little bit lukewarm, it was very different than yours uh, in all in all fairness. So um, it appeared um, Reasonable at, at the beginning, but then you start reading between the lines, it wasn't as strong. Um, but, you know, I I guess, um, are you prepared to make additional statements? I mean, are you able to have any additional pressure, I guess? I mean, it's not clear to me how much the societies can exert pressure on the ABIM. So there are certainly avenues that we're exploring. So we, we didn't make the statement in, in vain. So... Yeah, there are ways to to make a process that uh, we think can be better for our members, um, and we are hopeful that maybe ABIM will be that. Uh, but you know, there there are mechanisms that we're exploring. Well, I hope to have you back uh, on the show when we hear more on this. Um, Allison, anything else I should have asked uh, uh, pertaining to the sky, the the statements, um, next steps that you think uh, listeners and viewers would like to hear about and 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 watch? No, you know, I, I think that one thing that I mentioned yesterday when we were talking was that there's a lot of people that aren't on social media and are not really necessarily aware of what's going on. And I think some of the the Sky members that received the statement from, from the organization probably weren't really in the loop. So it, it would be good if we could figure out some way to get to those people who aren't necessarily on Twitter. You know, it's primarily Twitter. Those of us who are on Twitter or X um, are having conversations and the people who aren't, I'm not sure how much they really know about this. So I don't know how to do that. But I think it's another thing that we probably need to brainstorm because there really is power in numbers. This, this petition that Aaron has circulated that has almost 20,000 signatures really does speak volumes. And I think it would have many, many more if we could reach the people who weren't on social media. Hari, other thoughts? Anything? No, I think that's great. I mean, uh, you're right. I, uh, the other, area, other areas of social media are not lit up in the same way. So I do think that these types of podcasts are helpful. I'm also happy that Sky has an opportunity to, uh, you know, with this topic, also bridge a little bit past cardiology into other fields, such as yours. Uh, we almost never work together, uh, except we're in the hospital on a single patient. But 
nationally or societally, um, it's very rare to work with the other societies. So actually, this is a nice opportunity, if you look at it that way, to put everybody together on a common theme. So I found that part interesting online, although it still seems to be primarily hemonc and cardiology, primarily because of you guys uh, and Aaron. But yeah, I mean, might... the uh, American College of Physicians have not said anything. The ACP, the American Medical Associations have not. But your point is well taken. Maybe they are thinking through the process, they're going through their own channels. And, you know, when I first did the initial debate, I really wanted to be very open-minded to both sides because I've always said, you know, as you moderate any type of discussion and dialogue, you must try to take your own biases out and try to provide both sides and a chance to opine. But the more I learn, the more I realize there's really no not much that the other side really has um, in terms of, you know, um, this both sideism is not working right here. Yeah. It really is remarkable how this has brought so many physicians to the same conclusion. I mean, if you think about, there really is no topic in which this many physicians agree, you know? Um, so it's, it's remarkable to see that, yeah. but there's many more out there that aren't being represented, so. Drs. Allison Dupont and Hari Naidu, thank you so much for coming on Healthcare Unfiltered. Really appreciate it. And thank you to Sky for leading the way in really offering a statement that I believe 100% of the physicians would agree with, as long as they have no conflict of interest. <laughs> thank you, Shadi. Okay, folks, thank you so much for listening and for being on this show, watching or listening. I appreciate your support. Thank you for being loyal listeners to Healthcare Unfiltered. Thank you to my guests, Dr. Naidu and Dr. DuPont for being on the show. And thank you to Sky, the society that has issued a very strong statement. I believe we might hear more statements from other societies very soon, and only time will tell whether anything will change. I have my own reservation personally whether anything will actually change. Um, but I hope I'm wrong. And I hope I, this is the one thing I would like to be proven wrong. I've been proven wrong many, 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 many times before. But this is one other thing I would love to be proven wrong. So thank you for listening. And before I let you go, I'm going to leave you with a saying by doctor, not doctor, by poet Khalil Gibran. He's a Lebanese poet that died in 1931. Out of suffering have emerged the strongest souls. The most massive characters are seared with scars. Until next time, take care.